Welcome everyone to the Cloak and Dagger podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me is a guy with suspiciously green nail polish. It's Pete. Hello, Pete. Bless me, Father, for I'm about to sin. The Cloak and Dagger podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 203, Shadow Selves, is sponsored by Glitter Gutter Strip Club. Now, welcome to the stage, Francis! Wow, well, so glad to be talking some Cloak and Dagger, Pete. Why don't we head straight into the recap? Mina Hess runs Subject 11 through a maze to test it with the Roxxon compound taken from Link Pontchartrain 24 hours after the mass exposure. She's trying to frustrate it. Like she's frustrated as her grant money runs out and she's still not been able to determine what happened that night. Just then the power flickers and there are suddenly two subject 11s, but not for long as the new one dismembers the original. After a title card, we go back 242 days ago where Mayhem pulls herself out of the lake and home to O'Reilly's apartment. The TV reports unexplained acts of violence across the city. O'Reilly runs to the faucet, her green nails tapping impatiently before throwing the glass and drinking hungrily from the tap. The refrigerator freezer buzzes loudly, which she beats the crap out of and then throws down the stairs. Just then, the TV reports Detective Bridget O'Reilly is in critical condition at County General Hospital. Mayhem examines the unconscious O'Reilly, including the bandage on the right side of her neck, and grabs a pillow, but not to make her more comfortable. She's scared off by a pair of cops talking about Connors coming back to finish the job. Mayhem has her target. In the present day, Tyrone, Tandy, and O'Reilly behold the carnage mayhem has wrought on the dead ambulance driver. She's the one who is going to find those missing girls. She also admits to killing the gang members in the club. As sirens close in, Ty transports them to his church. But it's not so easy doing it so fast with two people. Tandy questions O'Reilly about her seeming twin and her abilities. Ty doesn't think O'Reilly knows what happened. Who does? Maybe Mina. She had no idea a human split occurred. Last time Tandy spoke to her, Mina hadn't gotten anywhere. Then came lucky number 11. Like the others, it was exposed to the chemical agent from her Roxxon valve where there, but there was a power surge and the trauma stimulated a fear agent and produced full on division. O'Reilly has a, has a twin with the same DNA fingerprints and memories, but distinct personality. The aggressive twins are filled with rage. Mina's up to number 22 and secured more funding to replicate her results. The aggressive mouse killed the docile one on more than one occasion. It's almost like it doesn't want there to be another one. 236 days ago, O'Reilly rented a room from Dale. 
She stole a pack of playing cards and started marking the Joker with a Sharpie. In the present day, O'Reilly believes Mayhem wants her dead. Ty wants to help her lay low, but Tandy believes her memory is the key. O'Reilly takes them to an SRO hotel for the broke or forgotten. She used to walk by it on the way to Fuchs' place, thinking she could hide there. Dale mistakes her for mayhem and gives her the key to the room, where they find articles and evidence all over the wall. 200 days ago, Francis Delgado packs a banker's box, but leaves behind a cross and his collar. Mayhem comes to see him looking for Tyrone Johnson, but police aren't supposed to be on school grounds, and he already gave a statement. But she needs Ty's help to find Connors. But she's not really with the police anymore. Delgado believes he should have been fired, so he's walking away. In the present, Ty has a deranged map twin. O'Reilly has credit fraud fraud. And there are missing flyers from the Ninth Ward. Ty finds a ton of heavy artillery in a trunk. The driver told Tandy there was going to be another job tonight, but he did not know where. In the hall, Ty asks Tandy if he's like Mayhem, but he's a protector and she's not. O'Reilly finds the playing cards, which she learned to keep notes on, when she was undercover from a reporter in New York. She used a game her dad taught her, the Four Kingdoms. Who's up for a trip to Bourbon Street? The former Father Delgado is drunk preaching and falls off his soapbox, but Mayhem helps him up. 122 days ago, Mayhem wonders who Connor's partner was. She accesses the computer of Officer Wyatt's unlocked patrol car, but if he gets her a coffee, four creams, five sugars, she'll let it go. She questions the chief, who asks how her shoulder is on her first day back, about Connors. No new leads. Let's leave it at that. In the present, our trio are outside the strip club. Tandy and Ty go in, leaving O'Reilly with instructions to come in blasting if they're not out in 10 minutes. Tandy finds Mayhem beating a guy up. She tells her she can't keep tearing up the city, but old Carl there has told her the girls they're searching for are at the Bayou Brothers truck stop in Slidell. Ty tells her not to do this, but she throws Carl at him and catches Tandy's light dagger. Outside, O'Reilly draws on her, but lacks the courage to pull the trigger on her twin. 113 days ago, a Boston Red Sox hat-wearing, bespectacled, red-lipsticked mayhem attends a public parish meeting regarding excessive force against a young woman in the Ninth Ward. Ty's mother casts the lone dissenting vote into a possible investigation. Mayhem questions a frustrated former cop with car trouble about Connors before killing him. 102 days ago, Delgado is struggling with his alcohol demons. Mayhem admits to killing Connors' partner and feeling no guilt. 
She throws him a discount bottle of gin and finds a flyer from Maribel O'Neill and a number of other girls, which she tears down. In the present, our protagonists arrive at the scene of an overturned ambulance too late, but the missing girls are safe courtesy of a woman who looks just like O'Reilly, who finds a detective badge beside the unconscious driver. Tandy thinks mayhem might be the right way. 48 hours earlier, we see Mayhem kill the gang members at the club. In the present, O'Reilly can't get info out of the shaken girls. Tandy tries by holding one's hand, but sees no hope. Ty tries and sees her abduction and knows where they were going. As Delgado denies there is any divine plan. Mina experiments and Ty and Tandy track where the kidnapped girls were being brought. 36 hours ago, Mayhem watches O'Reilly barf outside the bar. Ty recons the trafficking front. He teleports back inside before returning to tell Tandy it looks like the girls are locked in the back of the building in cells. Tandy notices Ty doesn't look so good, but they have to do this right now. They can't wait for mayhem. Tandy has an idea. She throws a ball of light as a distraction, and Ty frees the girls, teleporting them out. The gang members discover what's happened, and one of them gets the drop on Tandy, but is mowed down by a big rig driving mayhem. A kid sees Ty teleport, but bolts. Mayhem comes in guns blazing and Ty uses his power to protect the boy, swallowing Mayhem in his cloak. Inside the void, she sees a gas station where she finds a fridge with the body of Fuchs, which comes alive. Who's up for awkward reunion pancakes? I don't know about pancakes, Pete, but let's talk about dark figures. Can you believe there's a TV show that uses Subject 11 as a villain? What? Let's talk more about the Maniacal Mice Squared. Yeah, uh, how they were able to get one mouse makeup with the blood on its paws <laughs> as if it ripped the other one apart. Kudos there to the uh, production team. Hey, I mean, you know what? You have a you have a mouse that is well suited for the screen, you know, in terms of being docile or whatever. You get a little food coloring, you know, you put it on a, a piece of cheese, it eats it. You roll camera, you know, that's that's a good morning if you're a mouse wrangler, I suppose. Uh probably of larger impact. I'm gonna just throw out as a theory, Pete. Probably a bigger impact is mayhem. Uh I think having more impact on the plot than the mice. Um, in both cases, uh, the subject 11 squared and mayhem and O'Reilly seem to double out of like, I'm a little curious where the mass came from, but that's okay. It's just a comic book TV show. Mayhem definitely bad, except for when she's helping our heroes, right? I mean, she's trying to get these girls. She's taken on a cause. She wants justice uh given what connor's has done I, I don't think she's without um worth i think her methods are extraordinarily brutal and the discussion with delgado that 
you know, she doesn't feel the weight of guilt. She doesn't think she has a soul. We've gone through the terror explanation. Obviously, the substance in terms of allowing the full-on division of one individual into two, but not doubling the morality center, the, the soul, if you will, uh, something gets lost in the translation. There are multiple classic Star Trek episodes that involve somebody who is split into two and the episode reaches the conclusion. It is only with the dark and the light that one can be a well-balanced person. Uh, if it is all dark, then you are rage. If it is all light, then you are meek and afraid to offend or hurt or whatever. I, I guess I'm glad that we don't see that with O'Reilly. I know she's Oh, we still... don't when she doesn't pull the trigger on her uh, bad self? Uh, Pete, I... I will not take as evidence that O'Reilly is missing an essential piece of herself that Mayhem has taken. I will not take that as evidence that she won't shoot herself. I mean, Pete, I'm not a twin. You're not a twin. I can't imagine what it's like to turn the corner and see a doppelganger. Heck, Pete, at least twins have grown up knowing that there's somebody that looks an awful lot like them. To, to just suddenly have that revelation and look at it face to face... I, I, I will give that a pass. Now, I will say in terms of the acting, the fact that it's like, you're not going to shoot me, will you? And then O'Reilly kind of does this like, meh, like kind of in the acting, not in the voice. Kind of like, what, me, gun? Maybe something is missing. I guess here's what I'm trying to say, Pete. I'm not sure whether I want or don't want the episode 210 finale to be, you know, her and Mayhem both in the Jeff Goldblum fly-esque transportation chamber and they get put back together into one and she is made hold again they say everybody's got a twin matt well moving on pete we see uh ty's mother at uh one of the the local ward meetings now i've been to local governance meetings you've been to local governance meetings they always just refer to each other by last name right Kadalar. of of course <laughs> um and so what potentially puts her on the list here? Absent-mindedly attending this meeting, clearly still thinking about her son. Um, but this charge of excessive force against a woman and her lack of attention to it. And, you know, they needed a, a uh, unanimous vote in order to investigate and she's the one that prevents that. There's also a look to a man in the back of the room. Um, and Connor's uncle comes up in this episode yet again. Wonder if all of this can be put together. As you know, Pete, every public vote has the rules of the vote explained before they vote and the need <laughs> for some things to be unanimous. We will now vote to move on. I say aye. Nay. Ah. Uh. Well then, Pete, would you like to address the issue of Connor's partner? Kind of wish we got a name other than implied Connor's partner who gets impaled by the lady with the green fingernails. But oh well. Um, impaled or throat slit? I thought it was into the chest. Regardless, he's dead. Please continue. He, he is dead. Uh, she takes the spark plug out of his car. He's He's frustrated. He's been done dirty by dirty cops, Matt. You can understand. Um, 
but yeah, that this guy facilitated what Connors was doing and was expecting to reap the rewards. And uh, what do you know? It didn't happen. Well, yeah, you know what? Reap bad seeds and sow bad grain, I suppose. Pete, let's now shift to talking some light theories. First one up from me is coffee with four creams and five sugars inherently not good for you? Um, if I remember correctly, wasn't there something with the terrors with sugar intake? That does certainly ring a bell, Pete. And I mean, if nothing else, it's this great moment of, I don't know, kind of capturing mayhem, her ability to be a mooch, to be a little mean, to also be obviously self-serving and, uh, if nothing else, a funny line. You mentioned, uh, Brendelfly before. Uh, we're alluding, of course, to the the fly, particularly the Jeff Goldblum 1986 version here, um, who, when he combines with the fly, craves sugar just like a fly. Our terrors flies, Matt. Don't wait for the translation. Answer now. Uh, we have been setting up all along the giant bee versus fly battle that <laughs> yes. is yeah who will rule the roost at uh picnics this summer bees versus flies free form think forward pete talking theories here i was a little surprised by the the intermix formula used in this episode clearly a concerted effort made to get tyrone and tandy and o'reilly and mayhem and mina hess I feel like I could have done a little bit more with Cloak and Dagger superheroing. Did they do superhero stuff? Absolutely. But I feel like, particularly for the first half of the story, they were not in the driver's seat in a way that surprised me. Well, I mean, and you know this, this is the nature of TV production. This is an episode in which we've got to explain the mayhem backstory starting you know, 242 days ago and bringing it all the way back to the present, informing her story, what makes her tick, what she's about to do. And I think that makes the sin, Father Matthew, of less Tandy and Ty in this particular episode forgivable. So uh, we'll pardon it. I am reminded, although I must admit my brain having intentionally made it hazy, uh, season one of Iron Fist, where we had Harold Meacham come out of uh, <laughs> come out of a swamp, rejuvenated and evilified. I feel like that did it a bit faster than we got in this episode, but easy come, easy go. So Ty transports O'Reilly and uh, Tandy at the beginning of this episode. He talks about how it's difficult uh, later on. Um, Tandy says that he doesn't look so good. Is, is something going on with his powers? Is he not at his best? I certainly read it in that moment as it's difficult exponentially so for him to transport uh, more than himself uh, since we got the transportation of the three here. I suppose it also could be story seeding for later in the season. We do have one can assume we have Connors still alive and trapped inside him. We now have uh, mayhem in there for sure. So 
you know, I mean, I don't expect Mayhem to be gone forever, particularly since Pete, I don't know if you heard since the end of last season, Mayhem is coming. So I can't imagine that we're done with her here. Um, so maybe that's a factor too. And we're setting that up for, for the story ahead. That uh, Connor's being stuck inside him is uh, it's, it's weighing on him that there's some kind of pressure. Yes, or or whatever it might be. I must admit, Pete, I was surprised that when Mayhem goes to that that rest stop in the Netherworld, uh, I was surprised that Connors was not there. I think that he is. I think we haven't seen him yet. Obviously, having killed Fuchs, the nature of his sin uh, being laid bare uh, definitively in the the nether region wherever it is inside of ty and his cloak there um is there something to the green nails the green nail polish of um mayhem matt or is it just cosmetics i think it is there for purely story reasons so we can tell who's the baddie and who's the goodie um, I think too, it also is implied that, you know, they are hardened nails or poisoned nails, you know, whether she got Connor's partner in the throat or the chest or whatever, there certainly was the stabby motion with karate hand, um, and made only worse by, you know, those evil green nails. I wouldn't have minded a scene if we're going to do all these flashbacks, I wouldn't have minded a scene where as she's coming out of the goo, maybe the, you know, the fingers are turning green. Uh, something like that, just to really hammer home a, a slight otherworldliness to it. I don't obviously literally mean outside of Earth, but, you know, something that's that's beyond the normal human realm. But, uh, yeah, that's my take for those green nails. Everybody struggles with faith sometimes, Matt, but it was particularly difficult to see old Father Delgado here give up the collar, abandon the cloth, back on the sauce there on Bourbon Street struggling. Yeah, I think that though little of the episode is dedicated towards him, I think that, first of all, you see this this really unfortunate downward slide to somebody who, you know, had a noble calling, may return to it, but certainly has, has lost his way there in terms of uh, vocation and direction. You then add to it something that, Honestly, I had never quite considered, having been to New Orleans once and having had a jolly old time, uh, where the inebriated and the uninebriated were seemed to be in a safe, happy condition. I mean, got to be one of the worst places in the country to be if you're an alcoholic, just given the, not just the easy access, but the easy kind of cultural uh, acceptance of alcohol, you know, alcohol in the street, you can walk around with your container, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it really hammered home the plight that he is in. Is Ty's mom beholden to that man in the back of the uh, parish meeting, or was that misdirection? I think it is direction thus far. Now, it might be misdirection, dramatic reveal for something else. And I certainly would accept the idea that she's just so stunned having lost her other son in the in the last you know half year uh we had speculated last week as to the dissolving of her marriage uh i could imagine very easily why she's going through the world in a haze um but i think what 
the episode gave us is that there's pressure being exerted upon her. And how about this reporter that uh, O'Reilly learned this card trick from Matt? My mind went first to, uh, of course, Karen Page. Um, but I believe she learned it from another reporter, unfortunately late of this cinematic universe. That, of course, Ben Urich. Yes, and it was funny, Pete, because that particular scene in Daredevil where there's all the cards laid out, uh, it sticks in my mind for fantastic geek reasons. That was one of the moments where our deep analysis on that in what was a very, very long Daredevil podcast. In my mind, that's a touchstone that when we when we developed the the rundown format that we've been using for shows like Cloak and Dagger, where where things are a bit more efficient, I always think back to, man, you remember the seven minutes that we spent on that deck of cards? <laughs> it ended up not, this was not some sort of lost style blast door map. It was a neat bit of set dressing for, 30 or 40 seconds on screen and we spent all this time speculating about it so maybe occasionally you need to kind of you need to fine-tune the podcast to what the product is asking of its audience and um so yeah certainly a special callback there however a very nice one too to show in pete what i still continue to argue is unfortunately the waning days of live action marvel television as disney plus and Marvel Studios starts to do more in that arena. Uh, it's nice to show that things are still hashtag somewhat connected, tenuously, question mark. Well, geeks got a geek. Pete, let's check the old mailbag. We have a follow-up email from William Cornegay talking about some of the, uh, the issues of race and ethnicity with the characters. Here's what William had to say. When Cloak and Dagger first appeared in 1982, interracial pairings in the media were rare especially black male, white female ones. That may explain why Tyrone and Tandy's relationship was nebulously defined. They've been devoted to each other, codependent, and even siblings question mark, but not romantic. At other times he's loved her, but the feelings were unrequited. At least not until they were given a clean slate in the Ultimates universe in 2013. They debuted as a very sweet and romantically entangled divine pairing. A lot has changed since the 80s, the number of interracial couples on TV threatens to outnumber black, Hispanic, or Asian ones, especially on networks geared towards young adults like Freeform and The CW. However, shows featuring these couples rarely delve into the negative feelings some have towards these relationships. Cloak and Dagger is not afraid to address racial dynamics. Would they give us a storyline showing that interracial couple are not like any same-race couple while acknowledging they may face additional problems due to skin color that Tony Stark and Pepper Potts would not? Most people still marry within their ethnic group. 42.5% of black women will never marry. Evita is a smart and beautiful young woman with a lot going on for her. She's a catch, yet she lives in a society that idealizes white beauty, beauty that is personified by Tandy. We've already seen Evita turn down a schoolmate's advances after not seeing Ty for eight months. What if after all that love and devotion, Tyrone chooses the girl who, quote, looks like an angel, close quote? How do Evita and her aunt react? Are the writers nuanced enough to tell a story without anyone coming across as the, quote, bad guy? Your thoughts, Pete, in that really thoughtful email. It is a really thoughtful email and bonus points for the statistics. Um, 
I read Ty as still being um, devoted toward Evita. I'm not picking up a romantic um, vibe from Ty and Tandy. I don't think Tandy sees him romantically either. She talks about him protecting her almost like a brother would. Um, so I, I do not think they're headed there yet. Now, certainly events can change um, and the writers can choose to revisit that, uh, you know, as the source material has, but I, I don't think we've, we've quite had it given that they met, so young and, and growing up together there there's kind of that entangled idea there that that's not so much romantic I, i'm inclined to agree and i almost wonder if the the chemistry that the two actors have on screen um if if we're not getting the best version of that now with kind of that codependent on the run trying to do the right thing <laughs> in a complicated world, I feel like what we've seen, you know, I could be proven wrong, but what we've seen is the best version of those characters uh, versus, you know, will they or won't they, you know, here comes the special episode where they go out to dinner. I, I just feel like that's not this show. Yeah. And I think that it would be best served by returning to the storyline with Evita and resolving the conflict they have there and possibly moving forward. What do you have in your mailbag, Pete? Robert T. Frost wrote into the Fantastic Geek Facebook page. Hi, Matt and Pete. I wish I had more time to write about our new season of Cloak and Dagger, but life has reared its ugly head, which put my relaxing entertainment time at a premium. But I did want to help Matt out with his question about shotgun pellet spread. As a conservative rule of thumb, you can expect buckshot patterns to spread one inch per yard. In other words, a buckshot pattern at two yards, six feet, should be about two inches. Michaela should be safe from being hit with that narrow of a spread. Also, the doors on an ambulance tend to be heavy slash thick, so it would be possible for the doors not to be penetrated. Till next time, your friend, Bob. Hey, there you go. Good to know that what we saw on screen represented the real functions there of a shotgun. I know it's not the first time Bob has come through with some, some weapons knowledge, and uh, it, it makes sense. I feel like, Pete, I'm never going to forget that that one inch to one yard uh, ratio there. But thank you, Robert, for uh, for that explanation there. Really a huge help. Absolutely. Uh, there were one or two more comments, Matt, left on Facebook. The uh, Facebook Pages app has not been working correctly the last week, and uh, trying to get at it from the desktop right now is not cooperative either. So uh, keep them coming, and uh, we'll just... Uh, wind them in for next time if they're applicable. Uh, looks like for Facebook, mayhem has come or something like that. But <laughs> Pete, this podcast made possible by the people who support us on patreon.com slash fantastic geek, making sure that we can keep our evil uh, green nailed baddies at bay for one more episode and one more episode. Everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content. And then Matt, 
there are all sorts of levels to uh, contribute at. But we have just put up there a super special 48 minute, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Avengers Endgame Patreon exclusive preview. It is spoiler free, um, but you will never ever find it anywhere else. So if you are anxious, if, if you need some Avengers Endgame talk to get you through, I mean, we're, we're closing in, Matt. We're a little over uh, 10 days at this point. You, you're, you're jonesing for some Avengers Endgame talk. That is the place. 48 minutes for you. All it takes is a dollar to get in the club. Great stuff there and support always appreciated. But Pete, for free, how can people be in touch with you to talk Cloak and Dagger, to talk Endgame, etc.? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 10,414 followers, can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, on Instagram, on Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek, which isn't working right now, but when it does, <laughs> throw us a like if it ever continues to still be a thing. Well, Pete, we will be back next week, this time, same Cloak and Dagger time, same Cloak and Dagger channel to be talking more Cloak and Dagger in the interim. I know we have, let's see, we got some Godfriend of Me on the radar. We have something secret on the radar that actually we're going to be talking about in the next day or two. Uh, we have definitely the season finale of Star Trek Discovery to talk about. Exciting times, but great times nonetheless. With that, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you, Pete, the final word. You're going to have to do better than that.